0: live in a society where many of us have uh, grown accustomed to getting what we want when we want it. Uh, we no longer find ourselves waiting and saving, for example, as our parents and grandparents did to uh, buy that special item. Uh, we can have what we want when we want it, we can have it now, and we can pay for it later due to credit, for example. Uh, we also enjoy instant information and communication that's unique to our era that wasn't true of a generation before us. Many of you probably are sitting here with a cell phone in your purse or a pager on your side, and, and uh, we know that that's a possibility, that at any moment we, are, we can become accessible to anybody that wants to get a hold of us whenever they want to get a hold of us. We've got computers and the internet and email and access to those things. We've got websites. Uh, we've got all of this. You know, We eat at fast food restaurants that even promise a free meal if you have to wait longer than two minutes in a drive-up window. You know, it's incredible when you stop and think about it. It's instant everything. Instant coffee, instant breakfast, instant dinners, uh, ATM, self-service. Everything is is designed to get us what we want when we want it without having to wait. We can go to an airport and we can get on an airplane and we can fly around the world and be there uh, in the same day and sometimes even the day before, (laughs) depending on where you're going. Uh, You know, we don't have to wait 30 days for the stagecoach to come by or for the next train schedule. I mean, everything is geared toward instant results. And, uh, you know, and we begin to believe that that could be true of every area of our life. And perhaps some of you have heard of the fellow um, that lived in the hills of West Virginia. And I love this story. The guy lived way back in the hills of West Virginia. He lived so far back that he'd never been to a big city. Any of the things that we just discussed, he would never have heard of. he never heard of television. he never heard of any of the things, the cell phone, pagers, any of that. They lived so far out in the sticks that they were isolated from the modern technology of our world. And he met a gal who grew up in the same area, and they got married. And that wasn't long after that they had their first child, whom they creatively named Junior. And uh, that's where they live. And for the next 16 years, they lived in this particular community, isolated from the world around them. What about the age of 16? When Junior turned 16, they realized that, you know, it wouldn't be long before Junior was going to have to leave that community. Because there was no longer a way for them to be, for him to provide a living for himself or his family, And so Junior was uh, about to have to be thrust into this modern world, and Pa started to get concerned about it, didn't know what he was going to do. And so he came up with a game plan, and the game plan was that he wanted to make sure Junior was uh, prepared for the world that he was about to enter into. And so they saved their money for the next three years. The game plan was to go into the big city, to explain to Junior what he was getting into, to see everything that was going on around him, and to be able to be ready for this new world he was entering into. So three years pass. They throw all the stuff in the back of the pickup truck. Junior, Ma, and Pa get in the truck, and they start to drive into town. As they were driving into town, Pa gets a little nervous as he sees the city approach, and they pull over the side of the road and said, You know, uh, Ma, what we're going to do is Junior and I are going to get out of the truck when we get to the hotel. We're going to go check it out, make sure everything's fine and safe, and then I'll have Junior come back and get you, and we'll get settled in. So they drive up to the hotel and the doorman's there and they've never seen a doorman. They step on a mat and the doors open automatically. They're blown away by that. They walk inside this hotel and they see a three-story chandelier which they'd never seen and they're Their mouths just dropped at everything that was going on. There were waterfalls inside cascading over these rock formations. They looked over and there was a mall, an indoor shopping mall, and the hustle and bustle of all of that. And over this side, Junior yells, "Pa, look at this, and there's an indoor ice skating rink. And this is just absolutely phenomenal to these people who have never seen anything that was like that. And so as they're looking through all of these things, they're hearing this noise behind them, and as they look behind, they see this contraption, and they see people walking over to it, and they're pushing a button, and then the doors open from the center, they turn around, they get inside of it, they push a button, and then the doors close, and they disappear. And it's just amazing to them what was going on, and, and as they were going over to check it out, just as they were going to do it, they saw this little old lady in a walker, and she goes over, and she pushes the button. She gets, the door's open, she gets inside, she turns around, she pushes the button again, and she disappears, and there's nobody else that got in with her. And like almost instantaneously, the door's open again, and out comes the most gorgeous woman that Pa and Junior had ever seen. And it was just at that moment that Pa got an idea, and he said, Junior, quick, go get Mama out of the truck. You know, and and in such a society, if you stop, I love that story because it kind of illustrates that in such a society and with such a mentality, is it any wonder that many of us have come to believe that instant spiritual maturity is also a possibility? Is it any wonder that we think that way? You know, instant Christian, instant spiritual maturity. I think it's important that we at this time identify this one truth and that's this. That the Bible does teach that in a moment in time, a miraculous moment, in an instant in time, that the man or woman who recognizes they are sinners, that they have fallen short of the standard of God, that they realize that they're not perfect, that if the requirement to get into heaven is perfection, that they fall very short of that, that if they understand that and they recognize that the consequences for sin is spiritual death and physical death, and separation from God for all of eternity. And they cry out to God and say, Lord, forgive me for I am a sinner and I believe that Jesus Christ died in my place on the cross and if I believe in him, I will not be held accountable for that sin that he took all the sin of the world upon himself for those who would believe and receive him as their Lord and Savior. The Bible says for those who have received him, speaking of Jesus, that moment in time, they are born into the family of God. They are children of God to those who believe in his name. That happens instantly. That is not a process. That is an instant miracle of God. We are born again. We're children of God to those who believe in His name for the forgiveness of their sin. The Bible then goes on to say that we are no longer to be children of God, that we are to grow into spiritual maturity and to become men and women of God men and women of faith that could be used by God to make a difference in the world that God has us in at this moment in time. He says, we're not to be content to be children, but our goal should be to be perfect just as our heavenly Father is perfect, to set a standard that God has set and not to lower the bar where we can trip over it, but to reach for it each and every day of our life, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. The standard of growing in spiritual maturity is not something that happens instantly. It's something that happens over a lifetime. We are to be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ and God, He who began a good work in you, bang, the moment you accepted Christ, will continue to do so until the day of Christ Jesus. Until Jesus returns or until God calls us back into His presence. The reality of the Christian life is this. We are born as children of God in a moment of time when we surrender our hearts and our wills to God and ask for forgiveness of our sins and believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that is God in human flesh who gave himself for us. But the rest of the time from that day forward, we are to be moving, moving in a spiritual progression of spiritual maturity, never being content to be children. In every other area of life, Young people are not content to remain young. Children are not content to remain children. They can't wait to grow up. When I was a child, I couldn't wait to grow up and be an adult. I couldn't wait to get through junior high school so I could get into high school, so I could get into college, so I can be an adult one day and be a responsible, productive person, that I could have freedom to make decisions on my own, not be told what to do, when to do it. Little did I realize that I'm told what to do and when to do it more now than when I was a kid. But that's all right. That was part of that immaturity that I had at that point. Hey, I can't wait till I'm old enough that no one will tell me what to do. (laughs) Then I got married. Then I had a company, and then I got customers, then I got creditors, then I got... Everybody tells me what to do. But that's all right. But that's part of the maturing process. But the reality of all of that, what I'm trying to get across is this, that we should not be content to be children in our faith. The Apostle Paul said, you know, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted as a child, I behaved as a child. My whole process that I went through in life was as a child. But you know what? When I, it was time for me to become a man, I laid those childish things aside. And that's really the goal, and that's the aim of God, that we become conformed into the image of His Son each and every day. If we are not growing uh, in our spiritual maturity, then we are continuing to be spiritually immature. If we are not progressing, we are digressing. And that's really the only two options in the spiritual life. You're either moving forward or moving ahead, or you know what, or you're moving backwards. And we need to recognize that and understand it. So as we look at this, this lifelong process of spiritual growth, the question that you have to ask yourself is this, well, how does such growth occur? And I'm glad that you asked. Because God is concerned with practical, what I'd call practical Christianity. You know, he wants us to live out our faith, not just to sit around and discuss our doctrine. He wants his people on a journey toward Christ-likeness and not stuck on the side of road merely debating and talking about truth. He wants us to be, as James will indicate to us, he wants us to be doers of his word and not hearers only. As we come and we hear the word of God, the first thing that should come to our hearts is this, what should I do about what I just learned? That's the challenge. We've already seen how we can withstand trials along that journey towards spiritual maturity. Now we're going to consider in the next half of what we discuss how to resist the spiritual death dealing uh, process of temptation. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. Now, as we've said earlier in our last uh, time together, when you're tested by God and you pass the test, you receive spiritual blessing. We, re- we, we end up mature in our faith, and that goes, we end up with maturity that goes along with that particular testing. And it's important to respond properly to trials because God's purpose in trials is to bring us into spiritual adulthood. The purpose of trials or testings is to produce endurance, and endurance has a result which is perfection or maturity that we become men and women of God. He also wants, as we learn, for us to develop into a closer, more loving relationship with God. And as we looked at all this, in light of what we've learned about trials, it's important to note in the Greek that the word trials and temptation are the same word. Now the Greek word can be translated either way So as we're looking at this Depending on the context It'll either be translated trials Or it'll be translated temptation Notice for example in James chapter 1 verse 2 It says consider it all joy my brethren When you encounter what? Various trials That's what we talked about last time The testing of our faith And trials is, is one thing And as we go through Look at verse 13 He changes gears and the context changes Because it says let no one say when he's tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So at the first half of this section, he's talking about trials. The second half, even though the Greek word could be translated the same way, the context changes, and now that's why in English it's translated as temptation. First half is talking about trials. The next half will be talking about temptations, and that's where we're going to look at, the difference between the two. So as we look at this particular passage, one of the things that, that God encourages us that we need to understand is that we are to be growing through temptation. Growing through temptation, that's the subject, the topic uh, for this particular session. In verse 13, we read these words It says, Let no one say, when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived my beloved brethren as we begin this session as we look at this there's the one thing i want to introduce to help us kind of lay a foundation is the whole idea of what we'll call the substance of temptation it's like you know in in simple terms we know what's temptation all about and more importantly how does temptation contrast with trials What is the difference between trials and temptation? Because we've already learned that the word could be translated the same, and so obviously there's a thought difference that's taking place here. You've got trials on one hand, and you've got temptation on the other hand. And there's a, there's a, a, a contrast that's being made that we need to recognize and understand, and it's important that we do so. By definition, a trial is a test on the outside that if we pass the test, it leads to endurance, spiritual endurance, which ultimately leads to what? Spiritual maturity, which brings us into a closer, more loving relationship with God. That is a trial, that is a test. Temptation, on the other hand, is something that occurs within us that if we yield to that temptation, it does not lead to spiritual maturity, it leads to spiritual defeat And it also leads to an alienation in our relationship with God. Testing leads us closer when we pass to our relationship with God and more loving relationship. Temptation, on the other hand, if we yield to it, will lead us away from God and lead us into spiritual defeat. One draws us closer to God, the other one takes us further away from Him. And we need to recognize and understand the two. So as we look at this, what is temptation by simple definition? Temptation is this. Anything or anyone that entices us to do wrong by promising to provide pleasure or gain. Anything or anyone who entices us to do wrong by promising to provide pleasure or some sort of gain. You follow that? Listen to me carefully, because this is the foundation of what we're going to discuss. If we are not careful, the testing's... On the outside, will, for the most part, and I was going to say always. They say never say always and never. But there are some times where it's accurate, and you can say always and never. But the testings on the outside will, if we are not careful, produce temptations on the inside. You follow that? Let me give you a perfect biblical example of that. Turn back in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Job. And there is a wonderful contrast that takes place in an understanding of this whole battle between testings from the outside and temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult on the outside, we may be tempted to do wrong. Are you listening as you're turning? When the circumstances on our outsides are difficult, when the testings are difficult on the outside, we may be tempted on the inside to do what is wrong before God, thinking that we can somehow minimize the pain that we are experiencing because of the promise of temporary pleasure or gain. Follow that? Okay. Job chapter 1, starting with verse 7. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? Or from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth... And walking around on it, Peter later in his writings tells us that our adversary, the devil, is is a roaring lion, lion seeking to devour whom he may devour. That he paces the face of the earth, just looking for his next victim. And here we have it reinforced in the book of Job that that's exactly true that Satan is a real person, he's a personality, he's not an evil influence, he's not anything other than what God calls him, he's a very real adversary and enemy of the people of God, and he looks for God's people specifically to devour them and to destroy, destroy them and to somehow or another come up with a way to set up situations that, that will hinder us in growing more spiritually and in loving God more deeply so that God will not be able to use us. And we effectively, in his case, we are minimized as an enemy of his because we no longer are any benefit to God. He's neutralized us, and so he moves on to the next person that he wants to destroy. And the Lord said to Satan, Well, really? Well, have you considered my servant Job? I'm sure as Job read the words of God that are later written down, he really appreciated this behind-the-scenes conversation that took place. Here I am, Lord, just minding my own business. Everything's going good. Why'd you bring up my name? Why couldn't you say, have you considered Bill? <laughs> you <know? laughs> I'm thinking my neighbor here. He goes, no, man. They goes, have you considered Job? It says, for there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan answered and said, Lord, does Job fear God for no reason or for nothing? He says, hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. You notice what he's saying? Does, God love, does Job love you for no reason? God, obviously he loves you. Man, look what you've done in his life. I would love you too. Look at that. Wow, check it out. He says, plus you put a hedge around him. You're protecting him. I can't even get a hold of him. He says, but you put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he'll surely curse you to your face. That was the challenge. The behind the scenes spiritual challenge that was taking place that will now be taking place and will now be fought in the physical world. saying, if you consider Job, he's a blameless man, a righteous man. There's nobody like him on the face of the earth. And the accusation, who is the devil? He is our accuser, isn't he? He accuses the saints night and day before the throne of God and Jesus Christ defends us. He accuses us, Lord, how in a word, God, how can you love that guy? Look what he just did. How can you love that guy? Look what she just did. How can you make promise to them like that? You know what? And the accusations continue. And Jesus Christ is our advocate who defends us before the throne of God and say, but they put their faith and trust in me. So as we go through this, look, it says, okay, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only don't put forth your hand on him. So God says, okay, you can do whatever you want as far as his possessions are concerned and everything in his life, but you just can't touch him physically. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord and he made a beeline straight to Job. Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants, they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the, earth, or, or the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone escaped to tell you. Now, I don't know about you, but my worst day doesn't compare to this day this guy had. That is one bad day. You feeling a little sorry for yourself because of maybe the day that you had this week? Man, I had such a bad day. Well, you feel better now? That's a bad day. See, and the temptation was what? That through all of this, all the external problems that he went through, the inner temptation was to do what? To turn his back on God, to curse God, and, and to turn, turn himself away from God. How can I love a God that would allow that to happen? I'm out of here. To curse God. Notice this. Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he worshipped God. He worshipped them. And he said, Naked I've come from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. He says, The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Wow. The temptation was, curse God. Job passed the test. Later, he would be afflicted physically and be tempted again to curse God. In fact, his wife, the only one who survived, said to him, curse God and die. And thank you for those words of encouragement, dear. (laughs) That's not exactly what I needed to hear right at that moment. But sometimes, you know, the people who are closest to us are the ones that could be the greatest source of our spiritual agitation. And so we need to recognize that he passed the test. And that's the point that I'm trying to make, is this. That in the midst of all these trials and testings, the inner... Temptation was there to turn his back on God and to curse God. Perhaps you're going through some difficult times of testing. The test might be financially. And you may be tempted in the midst of the test to lie, to cheat, to steal, to not pay your debts or honor the debts that you've created. Maybe the temptation in the midst of all of these problems is to lean on alcohol or drugs. Or some other means to somehow or another uh, have some temporary pleasure in the midst of all of your pain. And to not turn to the Lord. Maybe you're going through difficult times in your relationship with others. Maybe you're having a difficult time in your relationship and your marriage. And the temptation in the midst of all of it is to turn to some other person for comfort that should only be provided by your spouse. Maybe you're dating. And the testing is, you know what, if you don't do it, you're going to lose me the temptation to give in sexually to the temptation that's there because of the test on the outside that says, if you love me, why won't you do this? To compromise our faith and trust in God. Maybe sometimes and oftentimes these are all interrelated, aren't they? And you think about the gentleman in Atlanta who had the financial troubles and the relationship troubles and all of it just kind of snowballed and compounded. And the temptation was within to say, I've got to find a way to get out of it. I've got to find a way to get even. I've got to find a way to express my anger and my bitterness and my resentment. And so the temptation is there to what? To pull out a gun and start killing people? And ultimately to succumb to the temptation of even killing yourself? Somehow or another, the lie and the deception was there that it will provide some sort of temporary pleasure and gain through the midst of all of our suffering. See, God tests us to bring about spiritual maturity and victory while temptation is designed to bring about our spiritual defeat. And we need to be wise to recognize the difference between the two. We need to recognize and understand it because the Bible is filled with with moments in time where men and women of faith were tested on the outside and it gave them a wonderful opportunity to prove the power of God and yet they yielded to the temptation within when Abraham went to Canaan and he saw that there was a famine in the land, instead of allowing it to be a wonderful opportunity to prove the power of God and the ability of God to provide, he took matters into his own hand and he went down into Egypt and he, and he, and he fell to the temptation within. God's limited somehow. I've got to take this into my own hands. I've got to take care of it myself. God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, a son, and he would be their heir and there would be a future generation. And Sarah and Abraham and Sarah laughed at God and Abraham looked at God and said, man, look at the two of us. It's impossible for us. This isn't going to happen. And so he went and took things into his own hand and he had a handmaiden of, uh, of his wife's and he took Hagar and he conceived a child with her and it led to nothing but grief throughout his life. It was an opportunity for God to prove that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think and yet he yielded to the temptation to take matters into his own hands. Israel often was wandering in the wilderness and the nation often turned testings into temptations and tempted the Lord. God, you can't provide for us. And he provided for him day and night. Millions of people out in the wilderness. He provided water for him. He provided food for him every day. And he said, just trust me and don't store it up. And yet they didn't trust him and they stored it up for the next day in case God somehow got busy on his schedule and he wouldn't provide for him tomorrow. And the bread that they stored up turned into worms and maggots. And he said, then he started to go, man, we're sick of bread. How about something else? How about some meat? Here's some birds for you to eat. Eat it until you get sick of it. And the lesson he was trying to get across to him was, how often do we test and tempt God? Prove yourself to us, oh God. We hear it all the time in the world, don't we? If God's really God, then he'll get me out of this jam. And if he gets me out of this jam, you know what? I promise God I'll start going to church. Yeah, okay. Like he doesn't know you're lying. You know, give me a break. Get me out of the jam, and Oh, the church thing? Eh, busy this week. I hear you. God's a lot sharper than us. Jonah's another great example. God called Jonah to preach the gospel to people that Jonah couldn't stand. Jonah said, there ain't no way that I'm preaching your love and forgiveness to people I don't like. I hope they rot in hell. How can you like him? I can't stand them. God said, go do it. Jonah said, I ain't going. God said, do it. Jonah said, I'm on another boat. I'm going another way. God said, like, you're going to get away from me and I'm not going to know where you are? Where are you going to go that you're going to hide from me? Jonah got on a boat, man. He set sail the opposite direction. God sent a storm. The boat was tossed up and down. Jonah said to the guys on the boat, you know what? This is all my fault. Throw me overboard. And at that point, they're probably thinking, if it is, you're going. (laughs) And he went and he preached the gospel to the Ninevites. And you know what? And at the end of all of that, you think Jonah grew spiritually? Nah At the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah's sitting out pouting like a baby. Because God did what he wanted to do and Jonah didn't want it to happen. He's sitting out there pouting like a little baby and he's mad at God. He's mad at the gourd that God gave to provide shade and then died on him. He's mad at everything and he's pouting. You know why, why he didn't learn anything? Because he didn't let God finish the work that he started through the testings he put him through. He jumped off the surgery table before the great physician was done working on him. That's the way it is. The point is this, going back to James, if we are to mature, we must face trials and temptations and do so successfully. In fact, the the Bible is very clear that trials and temptations are both inevitable. Notice verses 2 and verses 13 of James chapter 1, going back to the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 2, we said, Consider it all joy. We read, My brethren, when you encounter various trials, you will be tested. Go on to verse 13. Let no one say when tempted that he is tempted by God. You will be tested and we will be tempted. We need to understand that. So we need to recognize that through the midst of all of our testings from within will come our temptations. The temptations to do what's wrong before God because of the deception of providing for us temporary pleasure in the midst of our pain. We need to recognize that and understand it. So let's kind of go through it and go back and look at it and uh, and we'll kind of take it in an outline form. So we see the substance of temptation is the opposite of testing. Testing brings us closer to God as we pass the test. Temptation takes us further away from it. The second thing is we need to recognize the source of temptation. What is the source of temptation in our life? The Bible doesn't hesitate to tell us. Notice in verse 13, temptation is never directed by God you hear that temptation is never directed by God if you are caught in sin don't blame God for it if you are caught in sin don't blame God it's not his fault don't say well if God didn't want me to have sexual relationships with you know whomever he wouldn't have given me these desires well, God, if you don't want me to stuff my face at this buffet and get sick to my stomach where I can't even breathe and think and got to unbuckle my belt or whatever, then you shouldn't have given me the desire for all this cool food. God, yeah, this is your fault. You know, we hear rationalization all the time like that. I love, have you ever heard the, the meat lover's argument to vegetarians? I love this argument. Listen to it. If God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. There you go. Case okay, closed. I can argue with such a rationale. We hear it all the time on a more serious note. You know, God made me this way. We see it all the time in science. We're looking for scientific explanations of the behavior of people. There must be some gene that we can isolate that somehow or another we can blame for the way that people live their life. We don't want to hold them accountable and responsible. You know, my dad was like it, my uncle was like it, and I'm like it. We've all struggled with it. You know, it's just something in the gene pool, and we've all dipped in it, and that water must have been dirty. We're all like that. We all have a tendency, you know, to drink too much. We all have a tendency, you know, we all get that eye for other women. We all have that tendency, and, you know, and and we were born that way, and God made me that way, and that's just the way it is. After all, none of us are perfect. Hallelujah, brother. But God didn't make us that way. How can I be sure of that? Because the Bible clearly tells us that God cannot tempt us to do evil. And He Himself does not tempt anyone. And He cannot be tempted by evil. For in Him there is no darkness at all. There's no evil side of God. Do you ever struggle with that evil side within you? The stereotype of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder and the battle that takes place within? The dark side, we call it. We all struggle with that. God doesn't. There is no dark side. There is no evil. There is no shadow in, in the heart and character of God. God is perfect and He's holy and He's separated from evil and darkness and sin. There's nothing in him that would ever set us up to fall into sin. He doesn't test us to fall. He tests us to pass the test, and so we grow spiritually. He's not an evil teacher that gives you a test on something you've never studied before and say, good, try to pass this test. He doesn't do that. There's no evil or wickedness in God at all. He gives us the test because we have the ability to pass it. And as we pass it and we learn from it, he goes, see, I told you. Job passed the test and Job learned what God already knew about Job. He was a righteous man. He was blameless before God. But there were still some areas of his life that he needed to deal with in that journey and that path to spiritual maturity. He still questioned God. He still challenged and struggled with the decisions that God made in his life. And by the end of all of it, he said, Lord, who am I to question you? After God said, where were you when I formed the foundation of the world? Where were you when I set the seasons in place? Where were you when I put its earth on its axis? Where were you when I created the animals and their breeding patterns and where they live and their travel and their migration? Where were you through all of this? And he said, Lord, I am a stupid, foolish person that I would ever challenge or question anything you do. I put my hand over my mouth and I accept the fact that you're a little smarter than me. And he fell on his face and he repented before God. And he said, God, forgive me. Who am I to question you? See, God doesn't tempt anyone to do evil. It's impossible for him to do so you know the reason that Jesus did not fail or fall to temptation in the wilderness? Even though Satan pulled out his best shots, you know why Jesus didn't fall? Why he didn't fail? Because he couldn't. It was impossible. You said, then why was he te- tempted at all? Turn back a book. Hebrews chapter 4. Here's why he was tempted. He was tempted to be an example for us. In Hebrews chapter 4, notice verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be accused by the enemy, he knows what it's like to struggle with those promises of temporary pleasure and gain. He understands us. And because He understands us and yet did not sin and cannot sin, here's what He says, when you're struggling with temptation, that temptation within to do what's wrong before God because the testing on the outside seems so unbearable at times, He's saying, you know what, then let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help or grace to help in time of need. God, help me. Help me in the middle of... We're struggling in our marriage. Help me to do what's right before you. We're struggling in our finances. Help me to do what's right in the area of our finances. I want to lie. I want to cheat. I want to steal. I want to make this as easy as possible for myself. I want to find comfort in the arms of another besides my spouse. I'm struggling with all these things. He says we can draw confident, with confidence to the throne of grace because it's not like Jesus wouldn't have heard it and understand it. He goes, I know exactly what you're going through. Turn to me and I will help you. First, uh, First Corinthians ten thirteen says, and he will always provide with that temptation a way of escape so that we may be able to endure what we're going through so that we can withstand the temptation so that we can pass the test. That's what it's all about. We need to recognize it and understand it. We can have assurance and confidence. You say, going back to James, well, wait a minute. Then what is the source of all of temptation? What is the source of our problems? source of our problems is us look at it, James chapter 1 verse 14 the source of our problems is us let no one say when he is tempted and he will be tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone but here's the answer to the problem but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by what his own lust you follow that When I choose to sin before God, it's because I have yielded to my own lust. The Bible calls lust, or the desires of the flesh, that which is not pleasing to God. It's because I have given in to the dark side. I have surrendered and allowed that to take place in my life and to overcome me to the point where I make a deliberate choice, and that is to do what I know is wrong before God, and I do so anyway. Listen very carefully. Here's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A person who has put their faith and trust in Christ and is born again a child of God and those who have not. A dog barks because it's a dog. A dog scratches itself and does other disgusting things in public because it's a dog. A dog drops stuff on the sidewalk because it's a dog. A dog is a dog and acts like a dog because it's within the nature of a dog to be a dog. Follow me? A non-Christian lives like a non-Christian because it is his or her nature to do so. We sin because we're sinners, and we manifest the reality that we are wrong before God by the way that we conduct our lives, by the way we live. We are children by wrath, by nature we are born sinners. The Bible says in Psalm 51 that David, King David said that, in sin I was conceived in my mother's womb. What the Bible clearly teaches is is that all of us are born with a sin or spiritual birth defect called Sin. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born sinners. We are born and, and, and conceived in sin. We are sinful by nature. And as a result, we will continue to live that way until we get what? A new nature. When we, are, when we put our faith and trust in Christ and are born again, at that moment in time, if, if any of us is in Christ, the old nature passes away and behold, we receive a new nature. And that's why he says he wants us to be perfect as his heavenly father is perfect because it is attainable and it is possible to live and to move in that particular direction because God has given us a new nature that is in tune to the spirit of God. He allows us through the spirit of God and the conviction of God in our heart to understand the difference between right and wrong. So when the believer sins, it's because we choose to. We are responsible. We make the choice. We no longer can like the rest of the world say, it's just the way I am. I was born that way. God made me that way and all the garbage and nonsense that we hear, we are not we are not permitted to use that excuse or that lame line any longer. We sin because we choose to sin. It is, oh wow, look at look at time it is. Look how far we're into this particular session. And I've never and I have not up to this point used a sports illustration. I knew something was missing. So it's time. Here we go let me illustrate how this works see the difference is we have a we still have a sin nature even though we have a new nature so this side of heaven we're going to struggle with why do i do the things that i don't want to do and the things i do want to do and why do i do things that are wrong before god when i really want to serve god and please god and really want to grow closer to god and i really want to love god deeply and yet i still do stupid things why do i do these things oh wretched man i am who can set me free hey the lord can set you free the Spirit of God can set you free. The Word of God can set you free. It's there, uh, for, but we need to understand and recognize something. Here's what we need to recognize, and that is this: in sports, for example, I'll take football. They have game film, and the reason they have game film, or, or, or even practice film, is so that they can sit down together. And don't, please, ladies, don't tune me out here. I mean, you know, I see somebody going, in sports illustration." Okay, what do I need? I need milk and I need bread. And, and uh, is he still talking? Is he done yet? No, I'm not. So here we go. Um, so, so, here, so they have film. And the reason they have film is to identify, here's a big word for you, to identify tendencies. To identify tendencies. You got it? And you watch film, and the purpose of watching the film is to identify the tendencies of your enemy so that you do not fall into their trap. Got it? The tendencies of your opponent so you don't fall into their trap because what your opponent's trying to do is set you up to beat you. That's what it's all about. They want to beat you. And so, I'll give you an illustration from my own personal life. I was one of those guys who watched film and then never applied anything that I ever watched. I was was emotionally driven. It was like, I watched film, knew what to do, here's what we're supposed to do, and and then I just did whatever I felt like doing when I got on the field. And that was really a source of much agitation on the part of my relationship with my coaches. And, uh, and it was amazing because I learned a lot of lessons, good spiritual lessons, whether you believe that or not, ladies. I mean, a lot of good spiritual lessons came out of that. But here, here's one example. So we're watching film, and basically the bottom line was the, the team that we we're playing had a play that they ran. And what they would do is, I played linebacker, and they would have a person that would be supposed to come out to block me, but instead of blocking me, they would block down on the person on the inside. The tight end would kick out and go this way, and it left me all alone. And I'm excited, because I know if no one's coming after me, I had a chance to make a play. And so as you run across the line of scrimmage, what the coach would always tell you is, he said, now look, if no one's blocking you, there's a reason for it. So you run across the line of scrimmage and the play was coming this direction and you turned to look and as you turned to look the guard pulled from that end came down this way and just cleaned my clock so and the reason that I knew it I saw the film I saw him do it to people and I was like hey no one's blocking me watch this and i run across the line and go oh and I was like what an idiot and so the coach was like what did I tell you when you come across a line of scrimmage, there's going to have somebody trying to block you. You want to just take it with the shoulder and bear down, and then you can make the play. What are you turning this way for and getting knocked into the stadium seats? <laughs> Didn't you see that on the film? Uh, yeah. But, hey, I'm a linebacker. <laughs> I just hit people. It's like, what are you doing? Uh, let's see. Now, to put it in a spiritual application, I am not applying what I'm learning, coach. Very good. Now we got a chance to deal with you. See, tendencies. Baseball has tendencies. Every sport has tendencies. They tend to be weak on their backhand. So go to the backhand side. As a pitcher, you know that, hey, this guy, he swings at the first pitch. I mean, 90% of the time, his tendency is to swing at the first pitch. So if you're a good pitcher, what are you going to do? You're not going to throw a fastball down the middle of the plate. You're going to throw a changeup. you're going to throw a curveball. you're going to throw something low and away on the outside, you're going to throw something in on his hands, he's going to swing at it anyway, you're going to be ahead 0-1, take advantage of that weakness that he has, that tendency that he has. See, Satan knows our tendencies as human beings, he knows what it takes to make us fail. The tendency is, if you want to brush somebody back from the plate, throw them a high inside fastball, and that's why you see people diving backwards, and I guarantee you 90% of the time the tendency is going to be what with the next pitch? outside corner why because the guy just gave up a foot and he's not going to reach the outside corner with a telephone pole it's called tendencies we need to recognize and understand that our enemy knows our tendencies but we also need to recognize and understand this that god also reveals the tendencies of our enemy and we need to learn from that what is the first tendency of our enemy when we are doing wrong before God the first tendency of our enemy from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam was confronted by God and God said hey did you eat of that fruit what did Adam immediately do he blamed someone else who did he blame first his wife in essence he said Lord we were chilling man we were having a great time just me and you fellowshipping together the next thing I know, I fall asleep. I wake up. There's a naked lady standing in front of me. And somehow or another, this is going to be my fault? I don't remember being involved in that creation process. In fact, you know, I'm kind of sore right here. My rib hurts. It's like, what's up? There used to be another bump there. So it's like, and God didn't buy that. So what did he say? Well, if it's not her fault, it must be yours. Right? No. Who did God hold accountable and responsible for his decision? Adam. Eve was deceived, and Adam chose to do what was wrong before God. And it was through the sin of Adam, as through that sin of Adam, that sin entered into the world. And with sin came death. The tendency of our enemy is to try to get us to believe that when we are wrong before God, it must be someone else's fault. It certainly can't be my fault. If we are to be successful in overcoming temptation and continue towards spiritual maturity, we must thoroughly understand the steps or the process of temptation. The steps in the process of temptation. And the only way that we'll really understand it and identify the tendencies that lead us to sin before God is to dig into the Word of God, it's our game film, and study it diligently, and then as we learn, to apply it in our lives. Now, the only way we'll be able to do that is have you come back next time, because we're out of time this time. And so, we'll kind of leave you hang here, but if you want to dig in, dig into James chapter 1, and look at verses 15 through the end of that section, which is what, verse 18, and look at it and check it out. And I want to get into it in great detail so I'm not going to rush through it because we're going to see the steps of temptation and also the solution in the next meeting. That and next week when we get together, we're going to see how we can successfully overcome temptation. For now, for now, the one lesson that we need to take with us is this. Do you ever see in sports when guys make a mistake, they go like this, You know, they point to the guy across the field. And what what are they saying? Hey, my bad. That's what kids say. My bad, my bad, my mistake. I messed up. In essence, he's saying, I'm sorry. I'll try not to let it happen again. Can I just challenge all of us to realize that when we choose as God's people to do what's wrong before God, to not blame God, to not blame our spouse, To not blame our children, not blame our parents, not blame our coaches, not blame our teachers, not blame our community, not blame our, our government leaders, not blame our spiritual leaders, not blame anybody, but to take responsibility. I am responsible for the choices I make before God. Lord, I am responsible and nobody else. Forgive me if I'm wrong. And give me the strength to do what is right. If you are going through times of testing. And it's difficult on the outside. And you're ready to succumb to the temptations within. May I challenge you to recognize and understand. That the purpose of God's tests in our life. Is to bring about a successful completion of the course. Not to destroy us. God is a God of great love. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to pass the test. He wants us to have a spiritual diploma of maturity that says, well done, you're doing a good job. God is not hell-bent as Satan is to destroy our lives as believers. God is on our side. And the question is this, and if God is for us, who can be against us? Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the reality of, of the message that we learn God, help us to take responsibility and accountability for our actions. The word of God is so clear over and over again that there's a day coming. It's appointed for man to die once, and then what? Comes judgment. Solomon said that it 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 would behoove every person to fear God, to obey his commandments, and to recognize that every person, whether they're believers or unbelievers, one day will give an account before the God that created them. God, help us to be men and women of faith who recognize our accountability before you to recognize that the tests that you put us through are to produce endurance that lead to spiritual maturity, that lead to a more loving relationship with you and are not designed by you to destroy our life. God, we also must be aware of the tendency of our enemy in the midst of that test to provide temptation or entice us within our own hearts to do what's wrong before you, to take the easy way out by offering us temporary pleasure or gain. And it's all a lie and it's all deception, and we'll see that more clearly, but God, help us to be people who take accountability and responsibility for our actions. And God, we just praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.